Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Well, good morning. Good to see y'all here. Uh, exciting to uh, be here today. Beautiful day out there. And uh, if this is your very first time, I want to welcome you. We always have uh, some newcomers every week. And so uh, if this is your first time, welcome. My name is Pastor Mike, and I'm the lead pastor here at Rocky Peak. And we're just so glad that you found us and that God's brought you to join us today. And inside your bulletin, we use a, there's a white message note sheet. And uh, it's something we use every week to help us go through our time of teaching, and you'll find it helpful. Today we're continuing our series in the, the, this new series that we're in called The Message and the Movement, which is a study of the most famous sermon ever given in the history of the world, uh, Matthew 5 through 7. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Matthew 5 and get prepared for that, get your message note sheet out, and then we'll uh, get ready to, uh, to go into our time of teaching. So you ready to go? Yeah. Amen. All right. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we're just so excited to be here, and I, I think we're just excited about this series. You know, we're just, we're, uh, the last couple of weeks we've been sitting at your feet, and it's been sort of like a, I don't know, like a fire hose, drinking from a fire hose. Lord, you've just been here. You've been, you've been with us. Uh, you've been so present, and we've been so thankful because God, it's the reason we come every week is to hear from you. We want to gather around your feet like those disciples did 2,000 years ago and hear from you. We're just hungry, God. Your word has a transforming power in our life. When we hear you speak, we get changed. And so, Lord, we understand that as a congregation. And so we come right now corporately. We're not just doing the prayer before the sermon thing. We're corporately, we're asking you right now to come and show up and to be here with us. We ask you as a congregation, Lord, we, we just tell you that we're here, we're ready to listen. We, we don't want to be in the crowd, we want to be your disciples. And so we, we've got our listening ears on, Lord. Your word says, he has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we're here and we're ready to listen. Lord, will you come now and be with us, we pray in your name, amen. I'm not sure what time of day it was when the messenger arrived, but he got there with bad news. It turns out that one of Jesus' close friends, one of his best friends, in fact, the Bible says that he loved him. He loved him, not only him, but he loved his sisters. He had two sisters. The messenger came, and the, the message was short and to the point. He said, the one that you love is very sick. This man, like I said, had two sisters. Jesus had often spent the night with these three friends. They lived in the south of Israel in a small town called Bethany, right outside of Jerusalem. Jesus had just been in Jerusalem. In fact, they'd been trying to kill him in Jerusalem. So he'd escaped with his life and he and his disciples had traveled back north. And now they get the message that his friend in the south is very sick. And the message from the sister said, would you come quickly and, and heal our brother? But Jesus didn't come quickly. As the messenger delivered the message to Jesus and waited for him to respond, Jesus said, thank you very much. And he went on doing what he did. In fact, for the next two days, he just continued on doing what he was doing. And everyone was shocked. I thought he loved him. I thought he cared. Why isn't he going? The messenger went back and took the message and said, hey, I delivered the message, but I don't know if he's coming or not. He, when I left, he was just staying there. Two days later, Jesus seems to have a change of mind. And he decides to go south. And he tells his disciples, come on, boys, we're going south. And they're looking at him like, you're crazy. We just came from the south. They're trying to kill you in the south. What are you thinking? And Jesus had that look on his face like, don't mess with me. And so they said, okay, we're not messing with you. And we'll go to the south. And one of them says, let's go die with him. (laughs) And so they travel to the south. And of course, a several day journey. By the time they get there, their friend had died. In fact, he'd been dead and in the tomb for four or five days. News gets out that Jesus is heading for town, and so the two sisters are in their home. All the mourners are there. All their relatives are there. And one of the sisters gets up and wants to go meet Jesus. She just can't wait. He'd been her one hope, the one thing she had looked for. Like, like maybe this is the one. They'd seen him heal so many times. They'd, They'd seen him heal with the word at distance. When she sent the messenger, he was their one great hope. I'm sure that once Jesus hears about this, he'll just speak the word, or he'll come. My brother will be okay. I know it'll be okay. But he hadn't come. He hadn't spoken the word. And now she's confused, and she She doesn't understand. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there in your life when you're in the midst of a crisis and you call out to your friend Jesus, you've seen him heal others, you've seen him work for others, and you call out to Jesus and he doesn't come? He doesn't show up. He lingers for two days. By the time he gets there, it's too too late. Your, Your brother's been dead for a week and she's confused and she goes outside the town. And she meets him outside the town. And all she can say to him is, Jesus, if you'd been here my brother would not be dead. Was she confused? Was she angry? Was she disappointed? Was she all the three? We don't know. They had a short conversation, and Jesus sent her back home to get her sister, and so she went 
back into Bethany. He got her sister. When her sister comes up to come out and meet Jesus, all the, all the troops come with, the family, the relatives, the professional mourners. They all get outside of town. They meet Jesus. And now he deals with sister number two. And sister number two says the same thing that sister number one had said, the same thing that everyone was thinking. This man healed the eyes of the blind. This man's healed people. I thought he loved his friend. Why didn't he come? Why didn't he show up? Why didn't he heal him? And she comes, and she's just sobbing. She's the more emotional of the two. She falls at his feet. She starts sobbing and says, Jesus, if you'd only come, my brother would still be alive. And you're wondering, now what is Jesus going to say? This is the man who is never lost for words. This is the man that even when his enemies come, in the sly way to confuse him, he always knows exactly what to say. What will he say when we show up at the feet of Jesus and say, why didn't you come? Why weren't you here? If you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. What will he say? Everyone is waiting to hear, what will Jesus say? And this man that's never at a loss for words, he doesn't say a thing. For the first time in his life, in the story, in the Gospels, he does something we've never seen him do in all the Gospels up to this point. It takes everyone by surprise. Everyone's shocked. This is the man who's always in control, the man of power, the man of words, the man who's afraid of nobody, the man who's always on top of things. He does something that no one ever expected him to do. He began to cry. And he began to weep. It was just too much for him. Sister number one, then sister number two, all of the relatives, everyone's crying, and he just breaks down, and he enters into their pain at that moment in time, and he shares that moment, and he weeps with them. And when he gets done, all he says is, show me the tomb. And so they take Jesus to the tomb. And he gets to the tomb, and tombs in those days were like tombs in these days, the tombs were cut out of the sides of hills. They were basically caves that were carved out. Then they, they would cut out these huge stones that would be like big checker pieces, but about this big, if you can picture it, about this wide. And so they're very heavy, and they would cut a groove in front of the cave, and then it would take several men to slide this heavy stone in the groove across, and it would seal the cave. And so they get to the cave, and everyone's wondering what Jesus is going to do. And it says he was deeply moved again. And everyone's there. And everyone's still asking the question, I wonder why he didn't come. Why didn't he show up? I know they sent the message. I know the message got through. The messenger got back. He didn't come. Why didn't he come? Couldn't he have done something? Everyone is wondering the same thing. Is this man suddenly powerless? This man we've seen do so many amazing miracles. Has he suddenly lost his touch? And he stands here at the tomb. He's obviously moved emotionally. They're just all wondering. They're all confused. And all of a sudden, he says what no one expected them to say. He said, roll away the stone. Everyone's thinking, this is a bad idea. This, hey, he's been in there for four days. It's been hot out here. The flesh is going to be disintegrating. It's coming off the bone. This thing's going to stink. It's going to smell to high heaven. No one wants to say it because you don't say things to, like that to Jesus. Finally, sister number one speaks up and she says what everyone's thinking. Lord, it's been four days. It's really going to smell. And he turns around to her. He says, sister number one, just trust me. And they roll it away. And now everyone's watching. What's he going to do? Everyone's kind of backing up a little bit. They're afraid the odor's going to hit them. And all of a sudden, he says the last thing that anyone expected him to say. He calls out to his friends those simple words that were forever imprinted on their heart, imprinted on their mind. They would never forget that moment. All he said, simple words, is, Lazarus, come out. And now everyone's, everyone's, because what's going to happen? The people are hunched around. It's a large crowd. People in the back are trying to peek up. What's going on here? People are trying to get around the edge. There's a few at the edge in the front who are backing up. They're not sure what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, out of the cave comes Lazarus. His hands are still bound with the grave cloths. His feet are still bound with the grave cloths. He's got the grave cloth over his face, and he comes out, dead man walking. All Jesus says is, hey, take the... Take the dead clothes off him. He's not dead anymore. I love that story. 
I love that story for so many reasons. But one of the favorite reasons is because we get to see Jesus entering into the pain of his friends and weeping with those who weep. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's our beatitude of the day. It's beatitude number two. Today we come to the second beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the second step towards blessing and true happiness in our life. It's the second character quality of true disciples. Jesus had just launched his movement. If you've been here the last couple weeks, you understand this. He had just launched his movement in the north of Israel. The crowds were coming to see him teach, perhaps catch a miracle. One day he decides it's time to explain his movement to them. He goes up north of the Sea of Galilee, up on one of the hillside. He calls the crowds, his disciples, to him. He begins to lay out the message of his movement, what it means to be a part of his movement, what kind of person he's looking for in his movement, what it takes to be in his movement, the kind of person he wants to turn us into. And he sits down and he starts a sermon, the sermon that will affect the course of human history, the most famous sermon in the history of the world. And he starts off with eight statements about the path to true happiness. We call them the Beatitudes because they come from the Latin word for blessing. And the reason we call it the blessings is because every one of these eight statements starts with the Jewish way of communicating that goes the same way. Blessed are the X because they will receive Y. It's a formula. Blessed is this kind of person because this is what happened. And what he's doing, he's laying out for us the, the path to blessing. If you want to be blessed in life, here's the way to be blessed. If you want to be truly happy in the deepest sense, here's how to do it. In fact, if you want to be part of my kingdom, here's what it looks like. He holds up for us the perfect disciple, the prototype, so to speak. He says, let me show you the perfect disciple from eight different angles. And he says, describes eight different character qualities of his followers. We come today to number two. It's in chapter five, it's verse four, and it's surprising. Let's read it together. Now when I say read it together, I mean, let's read it together out loud, okay? So y'all ready? Verse four, let's start together. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's read it once again. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed or happy are those who mourn or are sad because they will be comforted. They'll be happy. Happy are those who are sad for they will be happy. <laughs> huh? Are you serious? Did you misspeak? Jesus, I know it's been a long day. You've been teaching. You've been healing. You want to take, take two on that. I think you missed that one. You didn't mean to say, happy are those who are sad, they'll be happy. What you meant to say is, happy are those who are never sad, they're always happy. Right? That's how we would do the Beatitudes, right? Happy are those who are never sad, because then they're always happy. And Jesus comes along and says, no, happy are those who are sad. We're like, happy are those who are sad? What are you talking about? Now, can I say something? I want to put neon lights around this. I, want to, I want anyone to miss this. Extremely important that you don't misunderstand what I'll be teaching today. The Bible clearly teaches that pain and suffering are a bad thing. They're the result of living in the fallen planet, a fallen world. When Jesus comes back and ushers in phase two of his kingdom, he will obliterate for his followers all pain and suffering. He will wipe every tear from our eye. So pain and suffering are not a good thing. We're all clear on that? Okay, we live in a fallen world. It's part of a fallen world. But here's what I want you to catch. is what Jesus is saying is that in phase one of his kingdom, which we're in right now, that not only are pain and suffering the norm for our lives, but they are also a key ingredient at times for our long-term happiness. In other words, if you want to be truly happy in the deepest sense of the word, there are going to be times in your life you're going to have to go through pain and suffering, and that when you're in it, though it doesn't seem that way, Jesus says you will actually be blessed. You're actually blessed as a result. 
Now, so today I want to ask a question. I want to raise a question. Very simple question. When are pain and suffering a good thing? We want to take this, this beatitude and do what we've done every week, use it as a gateway into the life and teaching of Jesus. What does he teach us about pain and suffering? I'm going to enter in through this. And why, is, why are pain and suffering so important for our long-term happiness? So there on your note sheet, you're so good. I can hear the pages flipping. You're just like, you're right there. We're just tracking together. It's so awesome. You've come a long way in two years, I'm telling you. <laughs> you're like, oh, you have too. You have too. Okay. So three things, three reasons, three times when pain and suffering are a good thing in our life, when God uses them to bless us, even though by nature they're a bad thing, okay? Number one, I'll notice all these three statements will start with the, the phrase, sorrow is a good thing when, and then we'll fill in the blank. So sorrow is a good thing when, number one, when it forces us to change. The first time is we look at the teaching of Jesus overall, and we say, when is sorrow a good thing? He, he will say to us, the sorrow is a blessing in your life when it forces us to change. Have you ever noticed that there's times in your life when you need to change? Ever notice this? And I'm talking about major change. I'm not talking about grow. We'll talk about it in a minute. I'm talking about change. You are on the wrong road. Have you ever been, anyone ever been on the wrong road in their life? Okay. Wow, so many perfect people. That's amazing. I'm so honored to teach in a church like this. This is great. So many Jesus people. Well, I'll tell you, I've been in the wrong road in my life. I remember in high school, I got on the wrong road in my life. I remember my 20s, I got on the wrong road. There's been times when I've got on the wrong road. I'm just heading the wrong way. I know what Jesus wants me to do. I don't want to do it. In fact, I'm not going to do it. That's what kind of changed. Jesus shows up on the scene. The first thing he says in Matthew's gospel is he launches his movement. The very first thing he says in all the gospels is the same. And here's what it is. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. First thing Jesus says. He says, I'm launching my kingdom. You want to be a part of my kingdom? That's awesome. But guess what? You're going to have to change. That's what the word repent means. It means to change. Change direction. He says, you've been, in, you've been in charge of your own life. You've been like the king or queen of your own life. You've called all the shots. He says, in my kingdom, I call the shots. I would love to be a part of my kingdom. I don't care what your past is like. I don't care where you've been. I'll forgive you. I'll remake you. But you have to surrender leadership of your life to be part of my kingdom. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. No one enters the kingdom of God without repenting. No one enters the kingdom of God without surrendering control of our life to the king. That's just the way it is. And so Jesus comes into our life and he says, repent to the kingdom of God. And it's not just it happens. It doesn't just happen once when we first come to Jesus. It happens throughout our life. As we're walking with Jesus, there's times where Jesus comes to us and he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. I want to do something different. You're on the wrong road. You need to change. I've got an amazing life for you. You need to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Enter into the kingdom. Enter in the joy, you see? And Jesus does that throughout our life. He comes, he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. But have you ever noticed that this sort of change is not easy? Have you ever been in a time in your life you don't want to repent? You want the kingdom, but you don't want to repent. Have you ever noticed it's often not till we get to the end of our ropes and that we're in so much pain from doing our life our own way that we're ready to repent? Have you ever noticed that? And when it takes pain to drive us to repentance that leads to new life, then pain actually becomes a blessing, doesn't it? One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is in Luke chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. But it's there in your note sheet if you just want to make sure I'm telling the truth later on. Jesus is invited to the home of a top-level religious leader. His name is Simon. He's a Pharisee. He's well-placed in the community, well thought of. Jesus goes to dinner. In those days, the way dinner works is you reclined at benches. You reclined at small tables. They still do this in the Middle East in some places. You recline on your left arm. You eat with your, your, your right. And so you're, you're facing the, the tables in front of you. Your feet are behind you. And this makes for good conversation because everyone's heads close together. And so he's invited to this dinner, and, and so he comes into this big house, and he's there, and, and while he's there, another person shows up. She wasn't on the guest list. The Bible says that she was a sinful woman. 
which is usually Bible code for prostitute. And so she shows up, and we're not sure why she showed up. She certainly wasn't invited. We know that. She must have heard Jesus teach. There was something about him that was different than all the other teachers. There was something about him that gave hope. She'd been a prostitute for years. So many men, so many nights. She was so dirty, she felt like she could never be clean again. There was no hope for her. She was condemned and she knew it. And something about hearing Jesus teach birthed new hope in her life. And maybe it was true. Maybe it was true that God doesn't care where you came from. He only cares where you're going. And maybe it's true that it doesn't matter how far you've gone from God, he's always capable of bringing you back if you're willing. And, and something begins to be birthed in her heart. Hope begins to be birthed in her heart. And I don't think she knew what she was going to do, but she wanted to do something special. Somehow she needed to get to Jesus. Somehow she needed to connect with him one-on-one. Somehow she needed to see if this message of Jesus was really true. And it was driving her. She was at a place in her life she could not stand her life anymore. She couldn't stand the pain. She couldn't stand the shame. She couldn't stand the looks. It was done with it. She wanted it. If it was true, she wanted to find out. She wanted to enter the kingdom. It was scary. It was a risk. She knew it would be painful to walk into that room. Every eye would be on her. Every person knew what she did for a living. Every person would be wondering, what is she doing here? She knew it would be painful, but she had to get to Jesus. And so she goes into her bedroom, and she takes out her perfume, the perfume of her trade. It was the most expensive thing she had, the most precious thing she had. I'm not sure she knew what she was going to do when she got there. But she takes her perfume, her vial of perfume. She heads to the the home. She sneaks in the back. She does a quick scan of the room. She sees Jesus in the corner as quietly as possible without growing attention to herself. She begins to move around the room until she's behind Jesus. Now she's here. What's she going to do? She doesn't know. She didn't have a plan. She doesn't have a plan. She thought maybe she would anoint his head, but as she's standing there, it all hits her. Her past and her future come together. They collide. Her past of sin, her future of hope, and they collide in that moment and all the nights and all the men and all the sin, and she begins to weep, and the tears begin to come down her cheek, and she She's trying to stop. She didn't mean to cry. She doesn't want to call attention. But the tears are now beginning to flow down her cheek, and they're beginning to fall off her cheek. And now she's beginning to sob, and she's racked with pain, and her tears are falling, and she looks down, and they're falling on Jesus' feet. And through her blurry eyes, she's shocked at what she sees, but she sees that Jesus' feet are dirty, and now his feet are getting muddy with her tears. And she didn't anticipate this because in that day, when you'd have an honored guest, you'd at least provide him water for his feet. You'd anoint his head with oil. Simon had obviously not done this for Jesus. And so she was shocked to see that his feet were still dirty. She couldn't believe that Jesus would not be, receive a warm welcome and this honor. And she looks down and suddenly she's just overwhelmed with emotion and through her sobs she knows what she needs to do. She's getting his feet dirty. The only solution is for her to clean up her mess. And she falls down to her feet and as she's sobbing, her tears are now falling on his feet. They're turning into mud. She takes off his sandals. She takes out her perfume that she'd intended to put on his head. And now she begins to pour it on his feet. And as she's pouring on his feet, she didn't bring a rag because she didn't plan to pour it on his feet. She doesn't have anything to clean him up with. And so she lets down her hair and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And now she is sobbing uncontrollably as her past collides with her future, the pain of her past. The prospects of her future, and they're colliding together, and she's sobbing, and now she's just losing control of herself. She came in embarrassed. She came in taking the risk, but now she doesn't even care. She just lost. All she needs to do is hear from Jesus. Is it possible that I can have a new life? And as she sobs over his feet, she does the unbelievable thing. She begins taking his feet in her hands and caressing him and kissing his feet. And I'm not talking one time. I mean, she is kissing him over and over again. This is a woman who's out of control. And all of a sudden, the music stops, and people begin to point and whisper, and everything is quiet. And they look over. And what a study in contrast. You've got the red light woman kissing the feet of the renegade pastor. And everyone is wondering, what the heck is going on? All eyes were on them. Everyone was locked in. What's going to happen? What, do they know each other? What is going on? It was so awkward. But for Simon the Pharisee, 
the self-righteous, it was more than awkward. This was inappropriate. This was inexcusable. If this man was really from God, he would recognize who this woman was. He would know who she was. He would not be letting him kiss her feet, kiss his feet. This is just unacceptable. And the whole room is waiting to see what Jesus will say. His disciples are watching. The crowd's watching. The religious leaders are watching. The common people are watching. What is Jesus going to say? And first he turns to Simon, his host, and he calls him out. He says, Simon, I know what you're thinking. He says, the fact is, when I came in tonight, you didn't give me water for my feet. You didn't greet me with a ministering kiss. You didn't anoint my head with oil. This woman that you're looking down on right now, she came in, she's washing my feet with her tears, she's wiping them with her hair, she's anointing my, my, my feet with perfume instead of my head, she's not stopped kissing my feet. Just Simon, something special is going on here. You might not understand it, but there's something special going on here. This woman is at a crisis in her life. This woman's at a turning point in her life. This woman, though she has sinned much, she has been forgiven. And then he turns to her, and she has just got to be wondering. Her whole life is flashing before her eyes. She's not sure how she got here, but she is one-on-one with Jesus, and her whole life is hanging in the balance. What is he going to say next? And she looks, and as she's thinking through all the nights, and all the sin, and all the men, and all the muck, and all the stuff, she looks at Jesus, and her whole life is hanging on the words he's about to say and what does he say to her he says it's okay your sin is forgiven it is forgiven the best the thing that you hope for the thing that drove you here the pain that drove you here the pain of rebellion in your life that drove you here it is okay you are forgiven Your hope is true. It is true. You are forgiven. Have you ever been there in your life where your pain drives you to change? Have you ever been there where you're so sick of doing life the way you are? You're so sick of partying. You're so sick of the mornings after. You're so sick of the drive for the drugs or the alcohol or the next conquest or for that rise in the corporation or for the slander in your life. Whatever it is, you're just so sick of it that it drives you to Jesus and says, okay, I want to do it a different way. Can you help me? Have you ever been there? And when we're there and at the feet of Jesus, he says to us, blessed are you who mourn, for there is comfort for you. You see, there's a new life for you. It doesn't matter whether we walk with Jesus for years or whether we're brand new coming to Jesus, it's the same. When our pain drives us to change, he says we are blessed. The Apostle Paul, there in your note sheet, he puts it so well. About 25 years later, he'll write these words. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says there's two kinds of sorrow in life. There's godly sorrow, and that comes from God. He says, and that brings repentance. That brings change. It drives us to change. He says, and that, in turn, leads to salvation. It leads to a new life like that woman we just talked about. And it leaves no regret. When you go through this kind of change, this kind of pain, and it drives you to change, and it drives you to Jesus, and there's no regret. You don't look back and say, oh, I'm sorry for that pain. You're saying, I, I hope I never go through that again, but it's that pain that drove me to Jesus. I'll do... I would do anything to get to Jesus. There's no regret. And he says, but then there's another kind of sorrow. It's a worldly sorrow. It's a sorrow that comes from this world. And it brings death. It brings destruction. See, not all pain is good. Not all pain is redemptive. But when the pain of life or the pain of our sin drives us to Jesus to a place of repentance, you see, it becomes a blessing. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will, like the woman, be comforted. Okay, number two. The second time that pain is a good thing, according to Jesus, is when it causes us to grow. There's times in our life we need to change. We just talked about that. We're on the wrong path. We need to get on the right path. Pain drives us to change. We understand that. But there's a second time this, when, when pain is a good thing. It's when it causes us to grow. 
when it causes us to deepen our character, deepen our commitments, when it causes us to drive us to God for a new level of relationship with Christ that we haven't had before. Now, this kind is different than the first kind because in the first time, there's something wrong in our life. We're being disobedient. This one, we're not being disobedient. It's just that there's nothing really we're doing wrong. It's just that God wants to take us to a new level. And so pain drives us to Christ in a new way. And there we, we are experiencing, we change, you see. There he, he, he changes in a variety of ways. We started today with the story of Lazarus. I didn't tell you the whole story. I left some of, the, some of it out. It turns out that when Jesus first came into town that day, and sister number one, one went out there, which, her name was Martha, by the way. Does that ring a bell, Martha? Yeah, she's famous, isn't she? She's famous as the neurotic housekeeper of the New Testament, right? There's a story in Luke chapter 10 about... Uh, Jesus comes for a visit, and Mary wants to sit around Jesus and learn from him, and Martha's too busy taking care of the house and getting dinner ready. And, and so we often think of, of uh, Martha like the neurotic uh, type A, uh, shallow person, you know? She's a person who just didn't have time for Jesus. She's just busy with doing the stuff of life. But it turns out there was much more to Martha than meets the eye, and this story tells us more about it. When, when Jesus shows up, and she goes outside of town the first time, and she meets him, the first thing that First thing that, uh, that he says to her, she says, is, is like I told you. She said, Jesus, why didn't you come? Uh, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. That's the first thing. But the second thing she said is amazing. And this was a woman of depth. The second thing she said was, and I know that even now, that whatever you ask your father for, he will give you. You got to be kidding me. Your brother's been dead for four days in the tomb. And what she seems to be saying is, I know he's been dead, but I know that you can raise him from the dead. I know that if you ask your father, he'll do that for you. And Jesus responds right away. He says, uh, you go, girl. He says, absolutely. He says, uh, he will rise. And now she's not sure she heard him right. And she says, well, well, I know it in the last day, what the end of times, that, sh- that she will rise again. And in the midst of her crisis, in the midst of her pain, Jesus has her attention. Have you ever noticed that when you're in a crisis and you're in pain that Jesus gets your attention? Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed this, that when you're in pain and life is hard, we are just all, we're ears on. God, do you have anything to say to me right now? You ever notice that? When life is going well, it's like, catch you later. We'll get back to you. You know, things are going well, don't really need your help. Thanks for the offer. When we're going through a hard time in our life, you just, you realize how receptive we get. Oh God, we're listening. Anything you're saying, I, I'm ready to hear that's why crisis is so important because in the midst of a crisis, man, we have our listening ears on. We are all, we're all ears. And if God wants to teach us something, the best way is to get us in a crisis and tell us there. And then we, we come out of the crisis, we remember what he taught us in the crisis. Well, she's in a crisis. She's in the midst of a crisis. And, and so what he's about to tell her is something she will never forget the rest of her life. There's, what he's about to tell her is going to transform her life. She doesn't know it yet. But she says, well, I know he'll rise in the last day. And he says something. He says, the resurrection is not an event. The resurrection is a person. He says, I am the resurrection. A resurrection is not just something that happens someday. He says, people get up when I tell them to get up. I am the resurrection. If I want your brother to get up early, that's up to me. See, Jesus chose that moment of her crisis to reveal himself to her in a way that she had never known him. And after they have that conversation, they go out to the grave and he says, roll away the stone. She says, hey, it's going to stink. And he turns to her and he says, do you remember our conversation? You just trust me. And that day she got more than her brother back. She got a new understanding of who God was that stayed with her the rest of her life. He pulled her into a place of understanding of who he was and his calling and his, his identity and his mission that she never would have understood. And it wasn't just for her. It was all the disciples. Everyone's view of Jesus changed that day through that crisis. You see, there was a reason why Jesus waited two days. There was a reason why he didn't come. There was a reason why he allowed this pain to happen in her life. He had something he wanted to teach them. He had something he wanted to do in their life. Can I tell you something? This story is like a microcosm of our lives. 
Life is sometimes good, life is sometimes hard, sometimes God makes sense, sometimes he doesn't. This is a microcosm of our life, that whenever God allows a pain in our life that makes no sense, I guarantee you there is a reason. And it may look like on the surface that he doesn't care. And it may look like in the service he's, on the surface he's not your friend, he doesn't He doesn't give a rip about your life. You send a message to Jesus that I need your help and your friend doesn't show up and you think, I thought you loved me. I thought you cared about me and you didn't show up and my brother died. And I guarantee you, when God allows that kind of pain in your life, that not that he created the pain, we live in a fallen world, but he is always working in it and there is a reason. That day she got more than her brother back. She got a new understanding. God drew her into a new relationship with him, a deeper relationship, one that she would change her for the rest of her life. Let me ask you about this. Is this not a true statement that most times in our life, if I were to ask you, when have you grown the most in your relationship with God? When has he shaped your character the most? When has he made you like his son the most? For most of us here, we would say, if we're honest, it was a time of his greatest pain. I, I cannot tell you how many times I talked to people, and I've, two times in the last month, I've talked to someone who said they described the horrendous situation they went through in their life. Horrible. Horrible situation. One man, his wife left him for another man. He hung in the relationship, did Christian counseling for years. And over seven years, she continued to commit adultery over and over again. And it led him to a place that's so low in his life, and it drove him to Jesus. It changed who he was. And if we were to ask him today, he'd say, Mike, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. I never want to go through that again. It was incredibly painful. I didn't think I was going to make it through. But I'm telling you, in some ways, it was the best of times. I got to know Jesus and connected with him in a way that changed me for the rest of my life. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that story. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. How many of you could share that? It's a common story. That when God wants to do something amazing and change us, one of his tools is pain. When I was growing up, as a young Christian, I read a book that really had a huge impact in my life. It's really a corny title, I admit it. But it's a a book called Hind's Feet on High Places by Hannah Hernard. How, How crazy is that? I got the alliteration thing going. Hind's feet, hind's feet, you know, hind is like a deer. In the Bible, there's a passage in Psalm 118 where David says, hey, you've made my, my feet like a deer. I can climb on the high places. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of, of overcoming power in your life. And this is a story, it's a story, it's, it's an allegory about this young girl named Much Afraid. She, she gives her life to the shepherd who represents Christ. And, and so she gives her life to the shepherd and she lives in the valley of, of, uh, of humiliation with all these fearing relatives. In her life, even though she's in the service of the shepherd, she's, just, she's disfigured. Her mouth is crooked. Her leg is lame. She can't walk very well. It's a picture of us when we first come to Christ, kind of messed up. And at some point, she gets tired of living in the valley of humiliation. So she talks to her shepherd and says, I would love to go with you. I've seen how you leap on the mountains. I would love to go with you and leap on the high places. And he says, well, I would love to take you. I've just been waiting for you to ask. And she says, really? You mean I could be transformed? I've heard that nothing impure can be go there, nothing disfigured. He says, that's true, but I can transform you. And so he says, just meet me at such and such a place and such and such a time. And so he shows up, and he's got these two dark figures behind him. And he says, these are the companions I've chosen for you on your journey. And they take off their hood, and one is suffering, and one is sorrow. And she looks at them, and she says, I don't want to go with them. They're scary looking. And he says, just trust me. Trust me, these are faithful companions. And as she put her hands in theirs and felt the pain, they led her through the treacherous trip to the high places. And at the end of the story, when she's transformed and she's become like Jesus and her mouth is, is, uh, is, is, uh, is made whole and her, her leg is healed and she's able now to leap with him on the high places, it's because she held the hands of pain and suffering. You see? When God wants to change a man, when God wants to change a woman, guess what one of his most powerful tools? It's the tool of pain and sorrow. And this week in your life group, you'll study this more. You'll be studying some scriptures in, uh, that talk about the various ways that God uses hard times to grow us. It's not painful. If you're like me, I don't look forward to them. I don't pray for them. 
I pray to be like Jesus and just ignore the part. Just like, just don't tell me the details. I know it's going to involve some hard times, right? So Jesus says, hey, when you're going through hard times because I'm shaping you to make you like me, he says, I know it's hard, but blessed are those who mourn. I'll meet you there in the middle. I'll transform you. You'll be comforted. Number three. The third time when pain is a a good thing, sorrow is a good thing, is when it moves us to care. One of the reasons I love the story of Lazarus and Martha and Mary is it just says at the beginning of the story that Jesus loved them. I, I, I can't remember right off the top of my head. I'm making this up as I go, but I can't remember. I don't think there's, maybe there's another place, but it's one of the few places, let's put it that way, where it says Jesus loved this person. It says it two or three times, that Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Martha. He loved Mary, that they were very close One of the things I love about this story is it shows us how Jesus acts towards his friends. And you understand, if you're a follower of Jesus, he calls us friends, right? I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. It shows us how Jesus acts towards his friends. It gives me insight of how he enters into our pain and how he shares our pain, our sorrow. I love this story. There's many times you'll read commentators, and everyone's got their opinion, on why Jesus cried. Why was Jesus crying that day? The, the thing that kind of is just so odd about it, so strange about it, is, you know, Martha's there, Mary's there, all the relatives are there, everyone's crying, and Jesus knows, he knows that within a half an hour, an hour, they're going to be at the tomb, and he's healing the guy. He's known that for days. He knew that before this thing ever came. Jesus knows he's about to solve the problem. So why does he start crying? Why is he crying? I'll tell you why I think he's crying. It's not for Lazarus. It's for Mary and Martha. They've been racked with pain and he sees them in their pain and he can't hold out any longer because the heart of Jesus always flows to us in our pain. The heart of Jesus is one who shares our pain. That's why he came to planet Earth. That's why Jesus came. He came to share our pain and then do something about it. And he's there with these close friends that he loves. His heart begins to break because he's in the moment with them. Was he going to heal them in 30 minutes? Yes, he was. But 30 minutes, 30 years, what's the difference to him? When you're in pain, he's in pain. Stop and think about it. Every pain you have in your life right now, and some of them are probably severe, every pain within 60 or 70 years, it's going to be gone, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, he's taking away your pain. So do, Do you want Jesus back there going, oh, no sweat, I know you're in pain, but no big deal. Seven years, it'll be over. Hey, in the light of eternity, who really cares? This isn't a blip, it's a flip. You're going to live for three trillion years or more. What's the big deal? Seven years, so it's pain. Do you really want a Jesus like that? No, no, you want a Jesus that comes and says, hey, this is huge for you right now. I understand that. I can see all of time. I can see all of eternity. I can see in the big picture. It's not going to matter that much. But you're in pain. And when you're in pain, I'm in pain. And I'm going to cry with you. And he flows to us in our pain. And he shares our pain. And catch this. As followers of Jesus, this is what he wants to do in our hearts. He wants to change you and me till we flow to the pain of others and we share their pain in the moment. That we mourn with those. And he says, blessed are you when you mourn. One of the things I love about Jesus, there's this particular phrase in the Greek text of the Gospels. Particular phrase, and it's translated by the New International Version that we use here. It's translated as Jesus was moved with compassion. I love that. I love it that Jesus is moved with compassion. It's a little phrase. It's really a single word in the Greek. He was moved with compassion. It talks about the, in, it's kind of the, the inner intestines, the bowels of your life, just groaning with someone else. He's moved with compassion. I love that about him. I love it as he heals the leper, and Mark says he was moved with compassion. I love it when he heals the blind man, and Matthew says he was moved with compassion. I love it when he shows up on the shores of Galilee in Matthew chapter 14, and he sees the crowds there, and he's trying to get away from everyone, but they need him so badly, and he was moved with compassion, and so he healed them, and he taught them. I love it when he's feeding the 5,000. They're all hungry. They're starving. They're going to faint on the way home, and he's moved with compassion. You see, I love this about Jesus. He's moved with compassion. Jesus flows to your pain. He flows to my pain. He wants to share our pain. He 
doesn't want to isolate himself from our pain. He wants to share our pain. That's what the cross is all about. He's moving to our pain. He's moving to our pain to take our pain on him to remove our pain. That's the heart of Jesus. And guess what? If we're a follower of Jesus, that's what he wants us to do. He wants to move our hearts so we move with the hearts of others. We beat with the hearts of others. We share their pain. And then we're moved to care. We're moved to do something. About three or four weeks ago, Lynn and I were coming back from Santa Barbara, which is one of the things we love to do. We love Santa Barbara. One of the things I love about living up here is that we're only about, from Simi Valley now, we're only about an hour, hour and five minutes from Santa Barbara. We used to be like three and a half hours plus going through L.A. <laughs> like, you know, the big, you know, three and a half hours, uh, but you're going through L.A. It's like, okay, five, seven, whatever. And now we're so close. And so often this will happen, I'll say, and it's nice to be really late. A few weeks ago, it's like five in the afternoon. I'm like, hey, you want to go to Santa Barbara? Get for dinner. It's like, you're crazy. I, don't, I know, I know, but let's just go. Okay, let's do it. And so we go up there and have dinner, and it's just great talking all the way up, talk the dinner, talking the way back. We get caught up with one another, come home refreshed, ready for another week. And so we were doing that Sunday afternoon, and I'm coming home late at night, like 9 30, 10 o'clock. We're driving across one of those crazy roads you go across in the middle of nowhere, and, and I'm just like, you know, we're kind of talked out now. We've been talking for five hours, and so we're playing around the, the, the radio and, and uh, come across a PBS station, and it's a BBS. Uh, special on, uh, on prisons in Pakistan. And I'm thinking, why not? And I'll listen. And so, um, and it's a story about kids in Pakistan and how in Pakistan, you can, the police can arrest a child as early as seven years old and take them to prison. And you don't have to press formal charges. You can hold them until their trial comes up. Um, and how much corruption there is. And they take these kids who are seven years old and up and they, they, they cram them in these prisons that are designed for adults. And they're like wall-to-wall people in there, and the kids are abused in there, and they're beaten in there, and they're sexually abused in there, and they don't have clothes, and they have hardly any food, and their families, their hearts are breaking, and they try to go time after time to court only to have their case not heard, and it can go on for years. And, and these kids are starving in there, so their families will try to bring them food, but the guards won't let them in unless they bribe them. And the guards will often beat the kids to bring out false confessions in order to motivate the families to bribe them. And you're just reading this story, and your heart's breaking. And you're just saying, I hate this world. This world is a place of pain. And Jesus says, I know, it is Satan's world right now. And that's why I want you to go and to share that pain, like I came and shared yours. The next day I come home, I'm reading through Christianity Today, the leading kind of Christian evangelical periodical, great magazine. I'm reading through the news section I'm reading about Sri Lanka, how this year there's a civil war going on. I didn't know that. 200,000 people have been forced from their homes, fleeing for the life, brutal, brutal massacres. 1,500 people have died. There's a Methodist pastor over there. They interview him. He describes it. He says, while we were taking rest one day at St. Anthony's Catholic Church and the compound, a shell fell on the, the courtyard. A child died in its mother's lap along with two others. I picked up the child soaked with blood and the memory still haunts me. In another camp, a mother of two, a lady by the name of Chandra, she sat under a shade tree and she described for aid workers how she saw her 68-year-old father slain near his shop. As the entire community fled, there was little time for a proper funeral. His body was quickly buried and then she and her family escaped. He was a wonderful father. Nothing could ever bring him back. How do you read that and not weep? Christians should be weepers. My Christianity Today comes a couple weeks ago, the cover article on it. Some of you have seen this. Child prostitution in the world. So the two million children in just Africa, Latin America, and Asia have been forced into prostitution. Average age, 14. Kids taken from their homes. Forced to be prostitutes. Beaten if they resist. Broken jaws if they resist. Often raped by the police chiefs in town who are covering up. How does your heart not break for this world we live in? And it's not just there. It's in our world, isn't it? It's right here. It's down the street. It's in your office. There is pain all around us. And Jesus says, blessed are you when you enter into the pain of others and you weep with those who weep, as Paul will later write. Blessed are you because you are carrying out my mission. See, our natural tendency in life is to isolate ourselves from those who pay, from pain because we want to be happy. 
And that's very natural. But Jesus says, I don't want you to isolate. I want you to embrace those. I want their pain to become your pain until it motivates you to do something about their pain. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This week in your life group, you'll be studying an interesting passage of Jesus. I'm not going to say a lot with it because I want you to wrestle with it, but I put it there on your note sheet. Luke chapter 14 Verse 12 to 14, Jesus says, hey, when you, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, you know, you're throwing a party, don't invite your friends. <laughs> don't you love Jesus? It's like, he, the guy is so unpredictable. Well, I just, I love reading him. It's like, seriously, if we're there, you're like, huh? Okay, I'm throwing a party. Okay, I'm making out the guest list. Yeah, no friends. Jesus, please, it's going to be a bad party. Don't invite your friends. Don't invite your brother or your relatives. Okay, the relatives, for some of us understand, all right? But <laughs> not me personally, but you know what I'm saying. Don't invite your rich neighbors. Well, that's other snobs anyway. Wait. He says, if you do, they, won't, they may invite you back. And so you'll be repaid. But when you give a, a banquet and you throw a party, hey, here's who I want you to invite. You're my followers. Here's who I want you to invite. Invite the poor. Invite the crippled. Make sure the lame are on your list. Get the blind there. Send a van, pick them up. He says, and, catch this, you will be what? Blessed. Is that, is that word starting to sound familiar to us now? Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus says, pick up those who mourn because you will be blessed. He says, although they can't repay you now, guess what? Phase two of my kingdom comes. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Blessed are those who mourn. When mourning for others drives us to care, moves us to care, Jesus says we're under his blessing. Let's wrap this thing up. Pain's not a good thing. When Jesus comes back, he will eradicate it from our lives when phase two of his kingdom. But in this life, he says it's not only normal, but it's often essential for our long-term happiness. When's it a good thing? It's good when it causes us to change when it forces us to grow, when it moves us to care. Let's pray together. Lord, your word's amazing. I can't even believe that. I didn't even want to teach on the Beatitudes. I didn't want to go here. And Lord, we've been so blessed the last few weeks just settling in, resting down in your teaching saying, what in the world did you mean? What's it about? What's your message? And Lord, we're learning as a congregation what it means to be blessed. Hey, it starts with being poor in spirit, knowing we have nothing to offer, no excuses to make. It's there we enter your kingdom. And now we come today, blessed are those who mourn. We mourn over our sin. That's the first step to entering your kingdom. We mourn over the hard things in our lives you use to shape us and grow us when we mourn over the pain of others because we become your hands and feet. Well, we're learning. We're learning what it means to be a church that follows you. We pray now for the grace, the power, and the strength to carry it out even this week as we explore these things with you together. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening.